there's kind of two ways you can go in those scenarios. You can either go down the dark path, you're a victim, the world, the universe has conspired to, to stop whatever progress you thought you were making or whatever life you thought you had, or you decide you're going to fight against it and fair or not fair, you're going to do the best you can and you're going to be swinging every day when you get up. Are you going to win the fight, the argument with the voices in your head? I didn't know it was going to be like this. I didn't know anything about this. This is what I thought it was going to be. And it's no longer about the cool outcome at the end of the, the pipeline. It's about you've got to wake up tomorrow morning and go through more of this. Those people that decide to win that argument with the voices in their head, they're not superhuman, but in a psychological sense, they've kind of inoculated themselves from those voices. Now they are the voice in their head. Now they're waking up every morning saying, I don't care what happens today, I'm going to get it done. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou, and boy, do we have an exciting guest lined up for you today. Today's guest is a leading thought leader, and he is a former Navy SEAL. This is a man who understands what it takes to accomplish at the highest levels in life and in business. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one. The only, the legendary Marty Strong. Welcome to the show, Marty. <laughs> Thanks, Nikki. Great windup. So, brother, I'm excited to have you here on the show. The folks who listen to the show tend to be the folks that I call society's greatest heroes. They're the men and women who dare to take a risk as entrepreneurs, go out there and create something that can possibly change the world, but can certainly change the trajectory of their family. And they come and they listen to this show because they want to learn from my guest experts. They want to learn from you. But before they can open themselves up to you, open their hearts to you, they got to get to know you. So tell us your backstory. How'd you get to be the great Marty Strong? I started out by being the not so great Marty Strong. That, that's the beginning of my backstory. So I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, uh, I joined the Navy when I was 17. And I did so because my parents had divorced. My dad didn't... Uh, want to put me through college, even though I had great grades. So I uh, decided to escape Nebraska by joining the Navy. And after going through some initial training, I went to the SEAL selection course known as BUDS, or Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training in Coronado, California. Six-month course, uh, completed that course successfully. We had about 13 original graduates out of 126 that originally started. Wow. Then went from there to Army Jump School, then to SEAL Team 2 here in Virginia Beach, where I currently reside. Did uh, 10 years as an enlisted SEAL. I got my degree in uh, business management and went on to Officers Candidate School and spent the second 10 years of my 20-year career as an officer. So in getting my master's in, uh, in management at some point in that. So soon after that, I went into managing money, first with Leg Mason out of Baltimore and then the United Bank of Switzerland, where I was a portfolio manager and did that for seven and a half years. And then I went into leading companies and divisions and becoming an author. Hot damn. So there's a lot to unpack in your backstory, brother. So parents getting divorced, that that's, that's tough. Uh, I went through a divorce myself, not the greatest thing in the world. And the impact that it can have on a child is is real and intense. So if you don't mind, share share with us what it was like to to have to go through that and use that as fuel to get you into, into your naval career. So my parents divorced after we moved to Japan. We, we lived in Omaha, Nebraska, and then we moved to Japan for four years. And my mom was an Iowa, Iowa girl. My dad was actually a, an Iowa farm boy, but he was working for the Department of the Army not in uniform and got a great offer to go to Japan, get a, get a big pay raise, a promotion. Great for him. <clears throat> she didn't like it. And so sometime during that 
four-year period, they decided to get a divorce. Went back to Omaha with my brother and sister and my mom. And she was uh, at that point an alcoholic and with nowadays they would call bipolar. Was in and out of institutions for a while. Wow. Somewhere in there, as the oldest child, I did what a lot of old kids do in those situations. They try to step up and become the surrogate uh, father figure. And, and not so much fathering my brother and sister, but more making sure the whole situation doesn't fall apart. And I, you know, you, there's no training for that. Nobody's teaching you how to do that. Nobody sits you down and says, okay, this is what you're going to do. This is how you're going to do it. I just kind of, you know, banged around trying to do what I thought was the right thing. And I, in retrospect, I realized that there's kind of two ways you can go in those scenarios. You can either kind of go down the dark path, you know, you're a victim of the circumstances and the world, the universe has, has conspired to, to stop whatever progress you thought you were making or whatever life you thought you had. And you kind of embrace that and go right down to the bottom of the ocean, holding onto that big iron ball of, of victim, victimhood. Or you go the other direction where you decide you're going to fight against it and fair or not fair, you're going to do the best you can and you're going to be swinging every day when you get up. I don't know. I, I don't remember any moment or epiphany where I had that conscious thought to go right instead of left, but I did. Um, my brother and sister also did, did pretty well coming out of that, took the same path I did. Um, we all became successful adults, but that I know had a lot to do with the psychological resilience that, that, was the basis of getting through the any special operations selections course. Yeah. I mean, that makes uh, a, a, a ton of sense, right? Um, when faced with adversity, you really have one of two choices. You can either spiral down into negativity or you can use it as fuel to say, nope, this is going to be the launch point for me moving to the next level. And And obviously in your case, you managed to do the latter and not the former. So kudos to you for doing that. So what made you decide to go for seal selection in the first place? Cause you know, that that's gotta be a pretty intense experience to go through. Yeah. I wish I could say that it was an intention. It wasn't, it was a mistake in orders. I actually went through, um, <laughs> I went through boot camp and went to air traffic control and radar school for about 17 weeks, which was what my intention was when I joined the Navy. My father was a radar operator in the Korean War. That's the only job I knew about. So I picked that one. And when I graduated, they handed me orders and the order said, report no later than 0730 tomorrow morning to underwater demolition seal training, Coronado, California. And I uh, called my dad from the airport in O'Hare and said, hey, I'm supposed to be coming home for a couple of weeks, but... Uh, they're sending me to California. I could be there tomorrow morning. He said, well, son, that's why they call them orders. Get there, find somebody, <laughs> find somebody, you know, a chief petty officer, tell them the story and they'll get it all sorted out and you'll be okay. I did everything my dad said, except that this chief petty officer I found, was actually a master chief and he talked me into volunteering. And that's how <laughs> I ended up starting in, <laughs> starting in class 93. So yeah, no, no real great battle plan, no great personal strategy. No, I wasn't connecting any dots. I didn't sit in a room planning for years. I just kind of blew at the wind <laughs> and ended wow. up there. That's a heck of a decision to make in that in that fashion. That that master chief must have been must have been one good talker. Must have been a great recruiter. <laughs> he, uh, I tell you what, it wasn't a recruiter so much, but he was he was small. He was about five foot six or five foot seven. Had a huge, I mean, chest full of medals, you know, like nine rows, Vietnam guy. He just talked to me like a dad, you know, and, and when you're that young, you're 17 and you're used to trusting an authority and things like that. There's this incredible display of authority in this guy in his uniform and his demeanor. So I don't think he really had to twist my arm. And it was a volunteer program. He kept saying, well, if it doesn't work out, you can, you're can. you still a radar air traffic control guy. You can go back and do that. I'm like, okay, that sounds good. So you become a Navy SEAL and you're an enlisted man and you do that for 10 years. What kind of assignments did you have as a Navy SEAL and SEAL Team 2? So I spent the first eight years at SEAL Team 2. And when you show up in a SEAL Team, you're, you're a nobody, you're a new guy. You, you, uh, you've just received your designation as a SEAL. You've just been able to put that uh, big gold eagle on your chest on your uniform except that we didn't wear uniforms very often so that's kind of a 
<laughs> kind of a strange twist of fate. Here you go. And I never, never put on a uniform. So nobody knows what you're doing. And um, you start apprenticing right off the bat. And, and I learned a lot that I know I've, re- I've relied on in later years about that approach, the cross training. Everybody had a primary responsibility administratively. So there were people that were experts in diving, experts in parachuting, experts in logistics, intelligence, uh, ordinance, communications. But that was their admin expertise. There's All of us had to be good at the combat skills equally, like, like everybody had to be able to play the instrument in the band kind of a thing. So you were you had a two-track training program. You were apprenticed to at least one or two of those admin areas, going to schools, et cetera, being trained under instruction, understudy kind of thing. And you were training in the choreography and the leadership and judgment associated with combat skills. And you just kind of incrementally got a little bit better and you deployed overseas and went places. And usually by about two years, you, you achieved at least mastery in one administrative area you were probably a number two in another administrative area and you had the you had the combat shtick down pretty good and that's about when most people feel like you're a peer before that you're still kind of just struggling like a like a resident in in a hospital or something and then after that two-year point you end up spending uh every year just deploying training training deploying i went to uh all over Europe and the Mediterranean during those eight years at SEAL Team 2, um, pretty much every country around the Mediterranean, all the way up to um, 300 miles north of the Arctic Circle in Norway. Wow. Uh, Arctic training and desert training and you name it, you know, riding camels and, and pulling sleds in the snow. So a huge range of things, right? And at the end of that, I was a, uh, a senior enlisted, made chief petty officer and went to the schoolhouse for two years as the senior enlisted for the first phase of BUDS training. So ironically, I went back eight years later and was in charge of things like Hell Week and and selecting the, the few that could make it through the process. I mean, I can't even imagine what that's like. You know, I, I follow some of the work of uh, David Goggins who um, has written about going through SEAL training and Hell Weeks and all that stuff. And for me, it's attractive because it seems like being a SEAL and and even, you know, selecting to go into the SEAL training is making a conscious choice to live uncomfortably, to live well out of your comfort zone and to say, I'm going to expand. I'm going to be better because I'm choosing to put myself in a situation where I know from the get jump, I'm not ready to do this, but that's okay. And we live in an age today, Marty, and I'm sure you would agree with this, where most people are soft. Most people think soft, they're comfortable. People get participation trophies just for showing up at things. And I think what's special about the SEALs and what makes me interested in interviewing someone who's been in the SEALs like yourself is that, you choose a different path. You choose to get out of your comfort zone and live outside of your comfort zone. And for that alone, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Yeah. Interestingly, the, uh, everything you just described, you're not really self-aware until about the second week of SEAL training. None of the actors in the movies are really doing whatever they're doing for, for days. And you don't get the same visceral appreciation of but mother nature does to you. I mean, that's, that's a big part of it. And so you get there and whether you, you were raised on a farm and you, you, you threw logs around for fun with your brothers or whether you were soft and lived in the city, whatever your background was by the second week, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. You are physically drained. You are beaten down physically. So that's the, the precursor precursor to the next kind of phase of the selection process which is very personal and very intimate. That's, are you going to win the fight, the argument with the voices in your head that at that point are telling you, I didn't know it was going to be like this. I didn't know anything about this. This isn't what I thought it was going to be. And it's no longer about the cool outcome at the end of the the pipeline and what you look like walking around and talking to your friends, what you've been (laughs) one or become one. It's about, you've got to wake up tomorrow morning and go through more of this. And you're, you have six months of this. And that's, 
that that moment is where most of the most of the people decided to quit. That's why the attrition's so high. It's always been high. You know, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, the attrition's pretty much been 75% of every training class. And those people that decide to win that argument, but the voices in their head, they're not superhuman. They're not suddenly the next day impervious to all the effects, the pain, the sleep deprivation, et cetera. Not in a physical sense, but in a psychological sense, they've kind of inoculated themselves from those voices, convincing them and determining their fate and their destiny. Now they are the voice in their head. Now they're waking up every morning saying, I don't care what happens today, I'm going to get it done. You know, and you have all these little phrases like, well, you know, they can they can beat me up until I pass out, but then they got to wake me up and then I'm okay again. So you know, maybe I'll miss a bad evolution and I'll be well rested. You know, all kinds of kind of gallows humor about it, but you aren't going to stop anymore at, at that point when you make that decision. And for everybody, it's pretty much somewhere in that second, maybe the third week, very, very small number that make it in the first couple of days of hell week. After Wednesday of hell week, nobody quits. That you you couldn't make anybody quit after that point. You what you've got is a solid hardcore group of people that are there's they're they're tired, their eyes are red, but they're staring at you with this resolve that you can just you can read it the moment it starts to happen as an instructor. So yeah, it's a transformation, but it's more of an internal transformation, not not something we give to them. It's something they give to themselves. Yeah, amen. Uh, I I think there's powerful lessons in there for everybody who is in business because when you decide to go into business, you're making an irrevocable commitment to living life differently than you did when you were an employee. You know, you're going to need to go out there and create your own job, as it were, every day. You're going to need to go out there and create your own success. You don't have a big organization behind you anymore that's going to do all that for you and you can relax. You can't relax, not even for a moment. And to me, studying the SEALs and studying what you just described it is worth its weight in gold, as far as I'm concerned. So, um, Marty, let's let's move forward in your story a little bit. So, why did you want to become an officer? Oh, man. I don't know if I've ever come up with a good reason or good answer to that question. Because <laughs> when, when you're a senior enlisted person in any of the services – uh, saying that, well, they call it like going to the dark side, you know, because, because you're going to become one of them, right? A cake eater, you know, there's all kinds of different <laughs> slang words for it. But, um, it actually in special operations, and this has been pretty traditional, there's a lot more, uh, prior enlisted officers in the officer corps, and there's a good reason for it. It costs about two, two million to, to two and a half million to get to that two year point in the, the training cost per seal. Wow. So then you add another, you know, like in case you add another five, six, seven years. So when I go to officers Canada school and I come back, I've got millions and millions and millions of invested taxpayer dollars. And I've been to 40 countries and, and I've done all these things. I'm a master in probably four or five of those admin categories I told you about. So for me to come back as an officer, it's kind of like a second bite at the apple for the Navy or for the, for the SF in the case of the Green Berets. And you add a little bit of wisdom and judgment to the organizational structure. You can be a good advisor to commanding officers along with the senior enlisted. So you're, you're depending on your attitude, if you come back and think you're, you know, Napoleon or something, of course, they'll tape your ankles and your wrists and, and it's over and you come back and you, and you just want to contribute. Everybody wants to contribute and you, you want to influence things for the best. So I think at that point, I knew because I made I made senior rank as enlisted way way like six years ahead of schedule, so I, I and I couldn't do it any faster. The last uh, two ranks would have taken me six years, or the first uh, what's it the seven ranks had taken me about five years. So I thought upper mobility wise I should I should go ahead and do it and make make the jump. I was I think I was twenty six years old. No, I was twenty eight years old. So yeah, so that's why I did it and. I've been trained by, been around, led by, and also mentored lots of officers in the SEAL teams. So I knew kind of the what not to do, what not to act like, and I knew who I wanted to emulate. And so right out of the box, I tried really hard to emulate all those great leaders that I'd been exposed to and to not have any of the bad habits that I'd been exposed to. Yeah, that's awesome. 
That's awesome. I love it. Um, so you spent 20 years uh, in the Navy as a SEAL. And then you left. You got into business. Why business? Why why leave the service in the first place? Why get into business? Well, I had a parachute accident in 1994. So I was the beginning of 94. And I didn't realize how much I messed up my back until about a year later when I messed up my back again, carrying a guy in a wounded mandrel. And next morning, I couldn't get out of bed. So I uh, had blown up my L5 disc, my L4 disc in that event. And the doctor said, looks like about a year ago, you blew out your L5. There's nothing left. So I didn't realize in the parachute accident that I had compressed and, and pretty much obliterated the, the L5. So at that point, I realized I wasn't going to be in the teams for much longer because you have to be able to be 100% to be on jump status and everything else. And I started thinking about what am I going to do next? And I was at the end of my 20 years, which is the first point where you can retire. So I made the decision to retire. I had degrees in business. I thought, well, maybe I want to be a lawyer. I started looking into that. And then a friend convinced me to get into financial services and money management. And that's what I did, except that I realized as soon as I stepped out of uniform, like most service members realize pretty quick, everybody that's a patriot appreciates your service. That doesn't mean they're going to give you a job because you don't know what the heck anybody does on the outside. And even if you have a degree, I, I learned really quick in the financial services industry, uh, all that education, that one class on how to sell. Yep. So if you can't sell, you can't, you can't find clients, you can't find clients, you can't manage money, you know? So it's kind of a, the chicken and the egg things. I was missing one of them. I was either missing the chicken or the egg part. Of it. <laughs> and I realized, I realized it pretty quickly after I went through all the, the training and took all the licensing exams and everything. I was a freshly minted guy, you know, financial advisor. And then I knew two people and only one of them had any money and it wasn't very much. So, uh, that was an actual, um, kind of come to Jesus moment where I realized that I'd gone from kind of the top of my game to somebody who'd spent all this time and effort to get positioned. And I didn't even know how to do the first basic thing, which is to sell. So how'd you, how'd you get that problem solved? After a couple of days of um, listening to those voices in my head, <laughs> what are you doing? Because it was um, all, all commission and fees. There was no salary. Yeah. So if I didn't, if I didn't start pretty quick, I was gonna have trouble. I had a lot of little kids, and um, after about two days, contemplating just quitting and going to find a job someplace, I called the only person I knew who did sales for a living, and he thought I was crazy. He goes, "Well." you'd be a, you'd be a great salesman. I can tell in a second, anybody would hire you as a salesman. It doesn't matter if you know how to do features and benefits and all that, you know, you're very trustworthy. People are going to feel that immediately. You just learn a little bit about the product. It's not a big deal. I'm like, that's it. That's that easy. Yeah. He goes, just go out there and start meeting people. Watch what happens. Just have conversations. Don't try to do anything particular. Don't try to do a formula. And uh, he goes, and he was selling big machinery. He said, I don't know what the nuances are for selling investments. But I get, I bet that the 80% of it is whether they trust you or not. Yep. Because if you don't come across as trustworthy, they're not going to hand you their life savings or the proceeds of their business they just sold. And he was right. And then another person came along and I kind of explained to him my misery. And he said, well, have you ever taught classes when you're in the military? Do you know how to teach? Yeah. Are you comfortable in front of crowds? Yeah. And you need to start on conceptual things like financial planning is that that are just planning you you planned as a seal right well yeah i was a mission planner i knew all that stuff he goes same thing and he was right so it turned out that it was a much more natural segue than i thought it was even though the my horror stories were trying to do everything that the book said i should be doing like cold calling and cold walking and going to convention centers with kiosks and all that i did all that none of that worked what actually worked was being myself getting in front of people in a seminar and um once I got them in the office for an interview and an appointment, making them feel comfortable and be able to trust me. And then, then the business started taking off. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. You know what? Um, it's very interesting that you figured that out because honestly, to me, sales is an act of service. Okay. You got to, 
be there to serve people. You got you to gotta give a good gosh darn about the other person if you're going to be successful at selling. And I had a, a show that I was a guest on and the host asked me uh, a question about selling. And then when I answered the question, he gave me a very powerful way to look at selling. He said, all sales is about creating pressure. Bad salespeople create external pressure. You want to buy? You ready to buy? Come on, buy, buy, buy. Good salespeople create internal pressure where the person realizes, I need to take action. Because the conversation that you've had with them has them create pressure to go, yeah, the way things are right now is not the way that I want them to be. I need to take action. And I thought that was pretty brilliant. And it seems like that's kind of what you figured out. You were yourself. People saw you were trustworthy and you helped them see that they needed something. So kudos. Good for you. That's amazing. Um, well, yeah. I mean, all these people that gave me the advice. I mean, I, I, I don't remember ever conceiving it and coming up with it myself, but you're right. And the call to action by giving seminars is really a higher call to action. It's the, the, the question that you don't ask kind of in your face is, are you doing any of this preparation? Have you done any of this thinking? Have you done any of this planning? Have you? And they're, of course, sitting there listening to what you're saying in their mind. They're saying, I'm not, I haven't done any of this. I'm not prepared for any of this. You know, so you're right. It's an internal, it's an internal uh, pressure rather than external pressure. Yeah, I know. It's pretty brilliant the way the guy put it this morning. I really liked it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you get into business, you're in sales for a while. Then what happens? Well, I actually did that for almost eight years. It uh, it segued. You know, you I learned a lot of consultants have obviously learned the same lesson. You bring in you bring in clients. Anybody that fogs a mirror becomes an, a client. You know, and you spend all your time equally on everybody. And the big clients, the small clients, the people people that really aren't your clients. I got abused because I was a nice guy and I was open. And I probably got pumped for a lot of information about the markets from some people that would put like a hundred dollars into a new account and then call me every five minutes asking me about stock trades, you know, that kind of stuff. And I had not, had not been exposed to any of that in the military. So it took me a while. The other thing was the people's attitudes about money. I, I wasn't around people that had a lot of money in the military. So I got to learn how people think about money. Everybody thinks about it individually. So I learned all that. And I went to a couple of in-house seminars at the end of each year. And I learned about the 80-20 rule and I learned about how to really get, look at my book of business and how much time was I spending and about the silent, the silent minority or the silent majority. If it's, if it's the, the, uh, the clientele that are actually driving your revenue and it, and that's, that's kind of the idea that the squeaky wheels are usually not the people that are bringing home the pay for you. The squeaky wheels are probably 80% of your maintenance headaches and 20% of your revenue and the silent majority, meaning the majority of your revenue, is coming from this little 20% that trust you and are quiet, but you're ignoring them because you're so busy <laughs> servicing the squeaky, the squeaky wheels. And I, I sat in a, in a at the Willer Hotel in, in Washington, DC, just next door to the White House. And I listened to this thing and I just had this epiphany. I said, I'm doing it was like four or five years in, I'm doing exactly what this guy is saying. So I restructured the business. I went to fee fee-based business instead of transactional. Uh, UBS made me a portfolio manager so I could create my own portfolios. That was a whole different thing. I was kind of sitting back now, strategic planning, strategic thought, bigger market, and that probably the last three and a half, four years. And and, and quite frankly, it was kind of boring com compared to the crazy beginning, four years. Uh, less stressful, but it was uh, less challenging. And I knew people that had got to that point and stayed that way for the next 20 years in that industry. And I couldn't, I couldn't see myself doing it. And that's when... Uh, when 9-11 happened. So I had a really hard time after 9-11 with the image of all my buddies that were still in the teams. I, I mean, I knew the second I saw the, the second plane hit, because we did these contingency plans, we did these, these flyaways, we did all kinds of stuff. I knew exactly what was going on. I knew the phones were ringing. I know guys were hauling ass into the, into the base. I mean, I could see the whole thing in my mind's eye, and I just felt like what I was doing didn't make any 
difference in the world. So I started thinking about moving on and trying to get involved somehow, which eventually I was able to. What'd you do? I first, after I sold my book of business, I got into helping the, uh, the U S government actually, and the Greek government, I was a counterterrorism advisor to the Greek government for the 1994 Athens Olympics. And I did a lot of counterterrorism, anti-terrorism consulting, basically what's called red teaming, trying to analyze the target set, big places, big infrastructure places, in the United States are, that were th- at the time were considered vulnerable, but also very critical to things like power grids and a lot of other things like that. And writing up how, basically writing up a, a mission, how a terrorist would attack, where they would back plan from this moment. Where are they right now? Where are they training? Where are they staging their gear? Where are they getting the gear? Where are they buying their gear? How they, And all that kind of stuff ends up with a profile and then intelligence services and other people can start looking at all those and start picking up these weird tells that are happening. And so, and I wasn't the only one doing this. There was a lot of other people doing it that had that kind of training from, from special operations. So um, I did that. And, um, and then I got hired into a, um, to a corporation to do classified stuff. And I did that for five years. And then I became an equity owner in a small government contracting company and which I'm still the CEO of that organization, but there's four companies now and it's like half government contracting and half healthcare. So when 9-11 happened, you heard the call and you answered it and you found a way to answer it that made a difference, but still kept you in in business. That's, um, you know, that's a case study for thought leadership because thought leadership is about having developed a body of expertise and then being able to use that expertise to help solve a very particular set of problems for a very particular group of people and do so in a way that's commercially successful. That's what you appear to have done in this. Have I got this right? Yeah. In a weird way, I used skill sets from the SEALs to become very competitive and and capable in managing money. And then I used my old technical skills from the SEALs and my my bigger picture appreciation of the economy, the world, the markets, the strategic framework that the terrorism event shook to transition into a consultant on that subject. And then I segued into a small company and then applied all my business. That's actually, that was the first time I ever applied anything I really learned in in school. And, uh, and that was, 16 years ago. So I've been managing this last year for 16 years. I've been the CEO for the last 14 years, I think. So, but you know, it kind of, I, I believe uh, Louis Pasteur has this, this quote, chance favors the prepared mind. It's one of my favorite quotes, whatever you're doing, just trust that whatever you're doing is setting you up to do something down the road that you can't anticipate, but that moment will come and you realize that because I embraced and learned everything I could five years ago, 10 years ago, it's now a tool in my toolbox. It's a part of me and I have to solve something now and I can do it. I do a better job of it because of what I learned back then. I tell them I have five kids. I tell all of them, every job's an academy. I don't care what they're paying you. Learn everything about good leadership, bad leadership, good management, bad management, you know, suck it all in, you know, write journals down about everything you're seeing. And then if you move to another company, do it all over again. Cause someday, you might want to start your own business or somebody's going to hire you in to be some level of management and you didn't pay attention or you did. So life's out there, observe it, absorb it and apply it. I I, I tell you something, man, this, this last two minutes, this conversation has been fascinating. I've learned a ton, but what you gave me in this last two minutes, that's absolute gold. That's, that's worth a million dollars. Like, honestly, I I I I am not a hundred percent clear on how you serve people right now uh, at the moment. I know you've written a book. I, I your history is very rich, but speaking as a thought leader and a fellow who works with a lot of thought leaders, that's that's some gold right there, brother. That's some gold right there. And that quote from Louis Pasteur, I wrote it down. It's it's very good. Chance favors a prepared mind. 
that's very true it does doesn't it yeah yeah okay so you start a business um and you've written a book tell us about your book well um this is going to be odd but i have nine novels and two business books and the the last business book be visionary which came out this year is about strategic leadership it's basically the a subtitle strategic leadership in the age of optimization and what it does it it's trying to um compare and contrast a focus on optimization which is essentially rearview mirror micromanaging micromeasuring and visionary thinking with a lot of risk taking and i make a point in there and you know you have to have both but I make a point and I, I kind of teach the reader how to become visionary, how to how to apply a vision and develop it into a concept and then take that concept and hand it to what I call the dream team to develop it into an actionable strategy. And then you throw it to the naysayers, the it ain't broke, don't fix it crowd and let them try to punch holes in it. Now, I say that because that's what we used to do in the SEAL teams. We come up with a plan and then you find somebody else and they look at it, try to find you know something wrong with it. And if they could easily find something wrong with it and you realize they were right, you had to fix the plan, right? <laughs> so the plan that nobody could really punch a hole in didn't mean it was the perfect plan. It just meant that you thought through everything pretty well. So uh, that, the book talks about all those all those um, aspects of strategic thinking and planning. And um, it's not just for leaders. It's not just for business. It's for It could be a, a, you know, a person trying to figure out their life or a professional, but it's... Um, it's a compelling argument. I mean, everybody's shortchanging the future and not investing in people because they're just thinking about what happened in the last quarter. Yeah, that's powerful stuff. So you've written nine novels and two business books. Yeah. I've written yeah. eight books, um, six of them business, one of them a kid's book, actually five of them business, one of them a kid's book, one of them a fitness book, and two of them are, are political books. Patriot books. The, this is the first political book with uh, Wayne Allen Root, who's a conservative radio talk show host. It's called The Great Patriot Protest and Boycott Book. This is a list of woke companies not to do business with. And this is our latest book, The Great Patriot Boycott Book, which is a list of patriotic companies to do business with. <laughs> so I like that. I've got a novel that I've written that I want to publish this year. It's written. I've, I've done, done four drafts of it. Um, so I'd love to chat with you offline. And if you're up for it, I'd love to send you my novel and get your thoughts on it because sure. uh, I need an actual novelist to read it. I've had one novelist read it. He gave <laughs> me some good feedback. It'd be great to get, get feedback from another novelist. So, wow, brother, looks like you and I enjoy, uh, enjoy your uh, writing as well as speaking. Uh, and, and I think that's a fabulous yep. thing. So, um, so Marty, what is your main focus in your life and in your business today? How is it that you're going out there making the difference you were focused on and born to make? I think the, um, you know, I did one of the, you ever hear of the seven whys that drill where you go, what do you, what do you want in life? And then somebody says whatever they want and then you say, why? And then they say, well, because, and then you say, why? But the idea is you start drilling down to the core driver, right? And it actually kind of works if you if you do it right. And I did that years ago. And my core why was influence or contribute. Everything I do, and in the second I, I got to that point, I realized, yeah, that's dead on. I've always wanted to influence or contribute. I'm not really focused on adulation. I'm not focused on, you know, it's like medals or 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 awards. So because of that, I, I work with transitioning veterans. Uh, all my novels, all nine of those, all the proceeds go to the SEAL Veterans Foundation uh, to a program that works on um, filling some of the gaps in funding for PTSD and traumatic brain injury. I um, I The reason I wrote the first business book, Be Nimble, was because people were coming to me, business owners, founders, people getting, getting ready to do a startup. And I was willing to talk with them, sit down with them, coach them, mentor them, not for money, just to do it. And eventually I had a couple of years of that on my belt. And I thought, well, I'm going to try to write all this down. And that's what the first book, Be Nimble, ended up being, kind of codifying how to be a leader in business. And 
I realize now that uh, what I really want to do is I, my third book, Be Different, uh, how, how Navy SEALs and Entrepreneurs Bend, Break, or Ignore the Rules to Get Results. I just sent it to the publisher, just sent the um, the book proposal to the publisher Saturday. So, you know, I, I want to keep writing. Um, I'm doing a screenplay course with Aaron Sorkin. I want to turn one of my novels into a screenplay. One of my SEAL novels, The Brotherhood. I so I have a lot of focus on creative things. I'm a board member of Best Robotics Incorporated, which is a nonprofit, been around for 30 years that runs 29 two-day robotics uh, competitions around the country every year for kids sixth to 12th grade. The unique thing there is the kids don't have to pay a penny. There's a lot of other competitions out there. You have to pay anywhere from $2,000 to $3,000 entry fee per kid. It's all covered by the donations and everything. So, so I'm working on that and I'm trying to segue out of my day job. I'm trying to, I've got the leadership infrastructure. I've got presidents reporting to me and everything. So I've been more and more shifting into strategic planning and, and even that's starting to get to the point where we're now living the strategies I, I put on paper five years ago. You know, my presidents can, can run all that. And it's time for me, I think by the end of this year, I'm going to kind of do a nice slide out and just focus on motivational speaking, writing books, maybe take a shot at this screenplay stuff and just keep helping wherever I can help. I think the speaking in the books is a great idea. Um, listen to some of our other episodes on this show because we're, we're all around like, using your expertise and turning it into speaking, training programs, coaching, et cetera, et cetera. Um, can't help you with the movie making, but Aaron Sorkin seems like he knows a thing or two about how to write scripts. <laughs> so um, I, I, I wrote, I read a book called Save the Cat and I did a course with Steve Pressfield uh, who wrote The War of Art and The Legend of Bagger Vance. And uh, you would be wise to study Steve Pressfield's work on writing because he's written quite a little bit on on writing and, and whatnot. So I think that'd be pretty cool to do. Happy to chat with you offline about the, the motivational speaking and, uh, and the book writing and turning that into a bit of a career because that's kind of what we do professionally for a lot of folks. And I'd love your help on uh, looking at my novel because I'm, uh, I'm excited about getting this out. It's been my dream since I was a little boy to have a novel published and uh, have it. Do yeah, well. ha happy to do so. I'm actually halfway through a business book, a friend of mine who's successful. And, and I thought, okay, you know, you say yes, and then you're gonna have to read the book. Then you read the book. And I'm actually working on a business plan related to the robotics company. And this, his book's about, it's called back of the napkin. And uh, I texted him after the first 45 pages and I said, you know, dude, I, I'm, I'm rewriting the business plan for this other entity. <laughs> I'm simplifying it. I'm following your, I'm following your formulas. This thing's great. You know, it's, it's, it's not lowbrow and it's not highbrow. It's exactly dialed in to, to what a, a person starting up a business needs. So you never know what you get out of it. You know, sometimes you read somebody else's novel and all of a sudden an idea comes up to do something else. So I'm Agreed. Chance favors the prepared mind there, Nikki. You, yeah, I love you it. got to keep yourself. I'm going to send you my cell number. Please send me a text. And um, I'd love to send you some of my books, uh, you know, as a gift. And uh, I'll definitely send you a copy of, uh, of my novel. Uh, I'm super, super excited, brother. Uh, this is great. This is super great. Okay. So what do you want to promote today, man? You want to talk about your books? Uh, what What is what is top of mind for Marty Strong today to get out into the world? Yeah, just if people go to MartyStrongBeNimble.com, everything I've been talking about, my articles, my books, everything's there. There's a speaker organization. And, you know, there's those links there to the to the novels. And as I said, all the proceeds of the novels go to the SEAL Veterans Foundation. <clears throat> so you can have some fun uh, reading about SEALs or four of the books are time travel books. So it's a time travel series. So you can nice. pick between whether you want to do time travel or SEALs. Um, and the business books, I think, well, they're not the proceeds aren't donated to anything. They um, they've been kind of the basis of my moving towards what I said I was going to do by the end of this year. You know, my board knows all this and everything. So they're not going to watch your, watch your podcast and go, what? Uh, yeah. 
it's been a two year a two year segue, so they, they're very much aware of it. Um, yeah, that's it. MartyStrongVenable.com. Go there, and uh, yeah, maybe you can find something that's useful. Check it out. Yeah, absolutely. I'll make sure I do that myself as well. I'm I'm excited to delve into some of your content here. This friend of yours that wrote this book, please connect him with me. I'd like to have him on my show. He sounds like he's done something pretty cool. Uh, so, Marty, we end off each episode by asking you, our guest expert, for your top three expert action steps. These are your three best pieces of advice for my listener to take their life, their business to the next level. What say you? All right. Let's see. The first one is spend about 10 minutes every morning when you wake up clearing your mind of all your to-do lists, clearing your mind of all your problem solving. If, if you're like me, you wake up as in, whether you're in management or whether you're a small business owner, you go to sleep that way, you wake up and bam, you're, you got this list pounding through your head. Take 10 minutes and clear your mind and think about tomorrow. And I mean, 24 months tomorrow. Think about the future. Think about what you want to be, what you want your organization to be, what, your what you want your family to look like and, and be. And then look 360 degrees around that, that horizon. Don't just get channeled into one particular direction. Do that every day as a habit. And what will happen is you will start to see all the decisions and all the challenges that come at you in the context of the future, because all of us get focused on the tips of our toes. So that's a very simple thing to do. You don't have to meditate or anything. Just stop, make a conscious effort to do it. Sometimes ideas come up for, for new businesses. Sometimes you pivot to a whole new different direction because you realize you've been uh, digging a trench in the wrong direction. Um, the second thing, I'm a big believer in creativity. Uh, the, my third business book's about creativity. So I, I've got kind of a three-step process for that. The first thing you need is intellectual humility. And I define that by clearing your mind of all your victories and all your defeats. Everything that's happened to you, positive or negative, that changes your behavior, the way you address challenges every day. Get that out of your head. First, when you, when you have a challenge thrown in front of you, make a conscious effort to do that. Later on, try to do that every day when you're walking into the office or into the business. Second, you have to have intellectual curiosity. And to me, that means that you are truly curious. You are willing to take in information and seek information from multiple sources, not just groupthink, not just in your lane. So if you're in an industry, you're in the car industry, Talk to people that are in, in art. Talk to people that are in the food uh, production industry. Talk to all kinds of people because you'll find that there's so much overlap and so much that other industries and other people are doing to solve a problem from 10 years ago that you're now just facing in your industry and the solution's sitting right there like two blocks away in a, in a different a different place. And then once you've done those first two steps, the third one is intellectual creativity. You can't truly be creative, in my opinion, unless you've done those first two steps. You have to be open-minded. You can't be carrying any arrogance or any defeatism baggage into the process. You can't be, you know, looking at the same information over and over again to be intellectually creative. That's those are the first, those are the three steps to be truly creative and make a difference. Um one is that, and I don't know why this is, but it comes up all the time when I'm working with um Trans, transitioning military. Seniors in high school, seniors in college, people transitioning out of the military, however long they stayed, people that are transitioning from a job, whether they just got let go or whatever, they all have the same mindset. They're all looking for, one, they all see it as a defeat almost. It's not an accomplishment. It's the end of something. And now they're looking at this abyss. They don't know what's going to happen to them. And they all try to make whatever their next decision is a perfect decision. And I don't know why that is, but I'll tell you, here's my, my thoughts about it. I ask fighter pilots that are 39 years old. They're thinking, I want to stay a senior officer. I want to stay, you know, in great esteem as a fighter pilot. I don't want to change my status. And then I, I toss by them, you know, how many years does it take to do these different vocations, schooling, whatever, engineering, architect, you know, doctor, software designer. And I throw out the numbers and I said, well, how old would you be then? How old would you be then? And they realize, or they come to realize that at 39, the world's not over. At 43, 44, they could start a new career as an engineer, architect. They could, they could own a restaurant, whatever they want to do. And then I impress upon them that because it takes time to become good at something, 
And I'll ask them how long did it take before they were considered to be a, a viable combat pilot. And, and they'll say, well, five years through the whole pipeline from the very beginning to when you're you're considered, yeah, you're, you're dialed in. Okay, so how, how many years do you think it's going to take to learn how to run a restaurant or run a manufacturing plant? You're going to start as an apprentice. You're going to work your way up. And there'll be a force multiplier because you've got more wisdom and experience in general and leading. But that's the mistake they make is they want, they think that they have to do exactly what they did before, positional authority, prestige, income. And they forgot that that's not the way they started the last, you know, profession. They started it as at the bottom. They started as a learning, like I explained to you with me, you'll learn from the beginning. You start out as an apprentice. So I tell people, one, the sky's the limit. The world's your oyster. In the United States, you can be anything you want to do. You can probably learn anything almost for free nowadays if, if you put the time in. Two, if you have the time before you get out of the service or before you get ready to leave a job, whatever, prepare, learn as much as you can, figure out what the landing zone looks like. And it can be any any kind of landing zone. And four, be prepared to be an apprentice and, and put some time and effort into it before you start to uh, be accepted and you start to understand basically how to bake the bread, so to speak. And so that's my third one. Um, for some reason, that comes up almost every time I meet with a veteran. So I end up using the same spiel over and over again. I love it. I love it. You know, um, there's a fellow who's been on the show. His name's Phil Randazzo. He runs something called AmericanDreamU.org. And he uh, started this organization to help veterans transitioning from the service into entrepreneurship. And I, I ought to see if I can connect you two folks together. He's a good man. And he really uh, uh, has put his money where his mouth is. He's put over a million dollars of his own money into running this organization and uh, being helpful to veterans. So, Marty, it's been a sheer delight having you on the show today, my friend. Thanks for coming on the show. And folks, Marty Strong is the real deal. Make sure you go to his website. It's going to be in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, give us a like, give us a rating, give us a review. But more important than that, share it with somebody who needs to hear its message. Okay. Because we're living in a time where people are looking for authenticity and they're looking for answers. And Marty Strong has delivered both. Brother Marty, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real honor, man. I'm looking forward to staying connected with you beyond this interview, brother. Thank you for having me, Nikki. My pleasure. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's incredible guest, the one and only Marty Strong, go to thethoughtleaderrevolution.com or wherever you happen to listen to this podcast, be it Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or what have you. Until next time. Goodbye. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice.